I'm very explicit and unambiguous when we say we've got to follow the science. If a study that's a good study comes out and shows efficacy and safety for hydroxychloroquine or any other drug that we do, if you do it in the right way, you accept the scientific data. But right now, today, the cumulative scientific data that has been put together and done over a number of different studies has shown no efficacy. There were massive shortages of the drug that occurred for these patients. And those were patients with lupus, arthritis, Sjogren's disease, you know, who for a long time had relied on that drug. They were stable on that drug to control their symptoms. And now they could not get their prescriptions filled. And they were hearing from their pharmacies that, you know, your prescription's coming up for refill and we don't know that we'll have that drug in stock. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. Type 1 diabetes attacks the pancreas. Rheumatoid arthritis goes after the joints. Psoriasis is a skin condition. Multiple sclerosis causes problems in the nervous system and the brain. Lupus can stress all of the above. When it's systemic, your body turns on its own tissues and organs. They're all different diseases that share a common etiology. Each is an autoimmune disorder. In total, there are more than 100 of them, and one in seven Americans has one or more, according to the National Institutes of Health. With an autoimmune disease, the immune system mistakes part of your own body as foreign, and it releases proteins called autoantibodies that attack healthy cells. This can cause painful, debilitating flare-ups. And if the right medication doesn't dial down your immune response in time, your body's friendly fire can be fatal. To keep overactive T-cells and B-cells in check, people with autoimmune conditions are often prescribed immunosuppressive drugs, But here's where things get really tricky, the age of COVID. People on immune-restraining medicines may be at greater risk of severe COVID disease. They are definitely at greater risk of infection in general, and 1 in 14 COVID hospitalizations are for secondary bacterial bugs, which are frequently fatal. Given this, people with autoimmune conditions are understandably coping with extra stress. And that pandemic stress coupled with the worrying about your kids, your job security, your insurance co-pays, can itself cause disease flare-ups. And that's to say nothing of the stress of being unable to access your medication in the first place. We've all heard about hydroxychloroquine and its controversy surrounding it. President Trump keeps promoting the drug as a COVID panacea, despite the Food and Drug Administration's best scientific judgment that it's not. This is the time for our government leaders to model science-based leadership. People with conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile arthritis, and lupus who rely on hydroxychloroquine to keep their symptoms at bay have had trouble accessing it because of so much improper use. A spring survey of Americans living with lupus found that one-third of the patients who rely on this medicine struggle to fill their prescriptions leading to halved or skipped doses. To 
Today, we're going to talk about the importance of science-based decision-making in the pandemic and what elected officials can do to support public policy that eases the burden on tens of millions of at-risk patients. Three in four people with autoimmune diseases are women. They are our mothers, our sisters, our aunts, our grandmothers, and our friends. And yes, there are fathers, sons, and husbands too. In troubled times like these, one thing we can all lend is our ear and our voice and share the message of science. Armed with the facts, we can cast aside rumor and rhetoric that put us all at risk, especially people whose immune system has already dealt them a powerful blow. Today, we're joined by a longtime warrior in the patient advocacy trenches. Randy Ruda has spent more than three decades fighting for patients, first leading Easter Seals, and now as president and CEO of the Autoimmune-Related Diseases Association. ARDA is an umbrella organization fighting for those living with all manners of autoimmune disorders, and it's the only national nonprofit dedicated to bringing a comprehensive focus to autoimmunity. Randy, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you so much, Michelle. So we know tens of millions of Americans are living with autoimmune disorders, yet for many people, this crisis has been their first real in-depth exposure to how deadly the autoimmune response can be if it's not reined in. The real problem isn't just that the immune response is too strong, it's that it keeps going when it shouldn't. During COVID, we've seen examples of the anti-inflammatory response causing the body to attack healthy organs after the virus has been cleared. Blood vessels leak, blood pressure drops, clots can form, and organ failure can be the end result. What are the most important things for our listeners to know about the autoimmune response? And can you help connect the science to the particular vulnerabilities faced by ARDA's patient population during COVID? Sure. You know, you're absolutely right about this uh, COVID pandemic really shining a very bright light on autoimmune disease and just chronic conditions generally. You know, we know that there's some 50 million Americans who are living with autoimmune disease. So it's a very prevalent um, condition in the American population and globally. And we know that there's at least 130 or so separate conditions that represent ways in which the body has really turned on itself, attacked its own tissues, recognizing them as foreign as opposed to um, themselves. That's a real problem. And what we know is that the impact is really on a lifespan. People don't often die of autoimmune diseases, but they're affected by them for decades. And it's the level of their health, their well-being, their quality of life that becomes the issue. Their ability to participate in family or go to work, uh, their participation in school and in community. You know, what kinds of symptoms might they experience, particularly at this time of COVID? People, you know, have extreme uh, joint inflammation that may have arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. They can lack mobility in their hands and legs, have a lot of pain that accompanies that. Uh, Maybe it's like psoriasis or eczema, so it's skin rashes and lesions that are painful. It leaves them open to infection. They're unsightly. You know, for IBD patients, those with inflammatory bowel disease, you know, you could be talking about debilitating cramping, diarrhea, weight loss, and weakness, um, sweat 
swelling that causes pain and damages tissues across the autoimmune spectrum, uh, sometimes causing lifelong damage and disability. So, you know, for example, in uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you literally without the proper medications uh, could have your um, cartilage just simply gone from your body. Your, your ability to walk and function will never come back to the same level. Or in cases of uh, like thyroid eye disease, you know, without the proper treatment, um, you simply can lose your sight um, and experience a great deal of pain and discomfort in the process. So it's easy to see why millions of patients with autoimmune diseases take immunosuppressive drugs to try to control this response. But, you know, due to the understandable fear of contracting COVID, some have been tempted to stop taking their medications to boost their immunity in case they have to fight off a coronavirus infection. Can you talk about this catch-22? Autoimmune patients are assessing risk every day in their choice of their treatment, their diets and exercise, their daily routine. You know, they have to be managing their condition and the symptoms and avoid triggers that could cause flare-ups every day. And then along comes COVID-19. And that's a danger specifically because they are they have these underlying conditions are at risk more so than the general public of developing a serious illness if they do contract the uh, coronavirus and it's been a disruptor in society all of those systems that people with chronic conditions and autoimmune disease rely on have been turned on their heads in this time of pandemic. Uh, the story has changed over the past few months as we've learned more about this disease, and that just makes it scary. So overwhelmingly, it's people with underlying conditions, including autoimmune disease, that are evident in these stories about serious illness, being on respirators, in the hospital for three months, um, or oftentimes dying, or leaving the hospital then with long-time long-term uh, conditions. They're weighing the risk of flare-ups um, against that perceived threat of contagion and illness. You know, early in the pandemic, their doctors were learning along with everybody else. And doctor's offices and treatment facilities were closed or seemed risky with the treatment and testing of COVID um, patients in those locations. You know, so the normal channels of access to expert information or one-on-one -on -one consultation with someone who knows them personally, along with the injection or infusion of meds that were important to them, diagnostic testing, even the medical procedures, everything was thrown off. And so patients were facing this catch-22, um, which was very real, in fear and often in isolation, both from the facts and then also from the systems that know them and could support them in a non-COVID environment. So we know that you speak to patients from your community just about every day. Can you share an individual story that helps illustrate how a patient with an autoimmune disease might weigh these kinds of trade-offs on whether the to continue or alter their medicine as the pandemic peaks? Thousands of these patients have contacted us. We literally did early on in the pandemic a um, session for autoimmune patients involving the um, CDC and their uh, high-risk task force. We had over 5,000 people register for that call. We ended up responding to 1,700 questions from these patients. They really wanted to understand the, uh, the risk associated with the pandemic and what that meant for them with a chronic disease and whether or not to stay on their treatment regimen or pull back due to fear of contracting the virus. 
this is what they're weighing. They're thinking about their ability to tolerate inflammation and illness and pain and discomfort and gamble that with the potentially debilitating symptoms that could come from COVID-19. Patients are revealing that they've stopped or are considering stopping taking their meds. And it's because they're so afraid of the ramifications of getting COVID-19, you know, while on an immunosuppressive medication. So I reached out to uh, one of my colleagues. She's an active patient advocate, very well regarded. And I said, why do you think this is happening? And she said, you know, for the patients that are doing this, and she highlighted that with in caps, yikes, I honestly don't believe they're thinking critically about trade-offs. She said they're acting out of fear and panic and are not being educated on the importance of staying on their meds. So in every interaction that we have with these patients, we encourage them to speak with their doctor and make those decisions in concert with that expert advice. Mm. So since staying on their regimen is so important for so many patients to prevent flare-ups, it's critical that their medications continue to be available during this crisis. And For patients with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile arthritis, that medication is often hydroxychloroquine. In my opening, I talked about how patients who need this medication have struggled to access it because of off-label COVID prescriptions. How big of a problem is this from your perspective? You know, Michelle, this was a big problem when um, the consideration of that particular drug for other uses in the um, COVID-19 pandemic uh, came about. So almost immediately, there were massive shortages of the drug that occurred for these patients. And those were patients with lupus, arthritis, Sjogren's disease, you know, who for a long time had relied on that drug. They were stable on that drug to control their symptoms. And now they could not get their prescriptions filled. And they were hearing from their pharmacies that, you know, your prescriptions coming up for refill, and we don't know that we'll have that drug in stock. The FDA, as you know, authorized clinical trials, and I heard that some insurance plans had even said to our autoimmune patients that um, their needs would come second to this interest in um, hydroxychloroquine as a COVID uh, treatment. And these patients panicked, and rightfully so. Um, Absent the drug, they knew that they would begin experiencing flare-ups, and it would be a real problem for them. So it was a big problem early on. And it continues to be a problem for some in kind of sporadic uh, cases across the country where these shortages might flare up. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, as we, we think about people with autoimmune disease and the fact that stress, the uncertainty itself around COVID-19 is in and of itself a source of uh, diminished health and flare-ups. And so just leaving them hanging that, okay, maybe this issue was resolved, but with COVID-19 progressing, could it come back again um, is a really debilitating and, and I would say unfair place to keep these patients. What's your message then for doctors who are prescribing hydroxychloroquine to patients for COVID against the advice of the Food and Drug Administration? Well, you know, for those doctors, um, it would be a stern look, and I would uh, remind them that the FDA has not approved hydroxychloroquine for treatment of coronavirus. There was that brief um, period of time when it was thought that it could be helpful, and so some clinical trials were initiated. The uh, emergency youth authorization went into place. It would allow for that drug to be assessed in that way, but then that was revoked in mid-June. So what I would say to those uh, physicians then, and I would certainly say to them now, follow the science follow the FDA guidance, um, follow your own medical training, um, and don't change your, um, your prescribing um, or get behind something that just has not been approved by the most trusted expert, which would be the FDA. Mm. 
So what have ARDA and your sister organizations like the Lupus Foundation done to try to address the hydroxychloroquine shortage? Are there things that you can do? Well, absolutely. I was very pleased to see our partner organizations, particularly those representing patients that are most dependent on hydroxychloroquine, immediately mounted an education campaign of all parties concerned. You know, there were letters to um, the White House task force on the COVID-19 response. There were letters in meetings with the FDA. Um, We were able to um, encourage the manufacturers themselves to ramp up production, even as we talked to pharmacists and others in the supply chain, um, health insurance plans that may have um, actually, you know, put a pause on hydrochloroquine for its autoimmune patients. We really um, help bring home the message that for these patients, they can't uh, step back from this. They shouldn't change their dose. They shouldn't change their frequency, worried that the supply might run out. There are no good alternatives to this particular medication. It's in a class in and of itself, um, in large part because it doesn't cause an immunosuppression suppressive uh, reaction in the body. So um, we really got on it to monitor the uh, levels of supply. And what we're saying to patients collectively is be proactive, make sure that you've got a 90-day supply if you can have that approved by your physician and, and health plan. Talk to your pharmacist, explain that your need is a medical need and perhaps they have the ability uh, to um, make your prescription a priority. We'd say check with other pharmacies as a backup, maybe even an online pharmacy if they might be able to fill a prescription if someone locally cannot. Um, We would say refill it uh, before the refill date if that's allowed through your insurance. Even think about an out-of-network supplier. That might cost a little more, but at least you're going to be stable on your med. You know, you touched upon the role of stress. And One of my best girlfriends has lupus, and I still remember her being diagnosed when we were freshmen, and we came to the first finals period, and we were all stressed out. But for her, it resulted in her first um, pretty significant lupus flare. And then she started living with the uncertainty that a flare could come at any time. For a lot of people living with autoimmune diseases, stress itself can trigger the flare-up, and we're all more stressed than usual in this age of COVID. What kind of coping strategies can help here? You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, stress for any of us we know can make you more susceptible to infection or just diminished health. For people with autoimmune conditions, it is a trigger. It's a real trigger for their conditions to flare up. Uh, We've been very fortunate, Arda. We have a board member, uh, Dr. Robert Phillips. He actually runs the Coping Center on Long Island. So he's made it um, his career to help uh, patients with chronic conditions, autoimmune disease, really cope with the challenges of those conditions. And uh, he encourages encourages uh, patients to be uh, take a mindful approach to understanding and managing their conditions. And it's a variety of techniques. You know, keep a diary, set goals for yourself, um, connect with others, pursue things like massage or meditation, yoga, nutrition to facilitate health and well-being. It's all, oftentimes it's all the things we know we should do for each other. So this pandemic has really amplified the mental health risks for patients, all patients, but certainly those with autoimmune disease. It's isolating. It distances people from families and friends. It uh, disconnects them from medical and other support systems that were disrupted. 
telemedicine, which will likely be considered a silver lining of this pandemic. Uh, The ability of patients to connect with their doctors or other medical personnel via Skype and Zoom has literally been a lifesaver. Many of these accommodations will likely remain, I hope. You know, this new flexibility is allowing for home care that wasn't there previously. And so for rural patients, uh, for patients with mobility issues where it's just not easy for them to get into the doctor's office, um, it's a godsend. And then as doctor's offices, infusion centers, other facilities have um, implemented the necessary COVID-19 protocols, um, patients can feel comfortable in accessing those essential in-person care, you know, while using telemedicine um, as an effective, easy, and often less costly alternative. We've talked about some of the social impacts of autoimmune diseases, but, you know, when people lose their jobs, they often lose their ability to afford quality health insurance. And the U.S. unemployment rate currently sits at 11%. And a study last month found that more than 5 million American workers lost their health insurance this spring alone. That number is higher than those in any full year of insurance losses in American history. What impacts are you seeing on your patient population? And what can Congress do to make sure these newly uninsured can access their medications? That statistic, that finding that you just shared is nothing short of alarming. And as someone who's worked in healthcare his entire life, it's, I just I just shiver at the thought that so many more people would become uninsured. You know, we had made some progress, but as we know, for people with autoimmune disease and chronic conditions, there are still a lot of gaps in our coverage and in our healthcare system. But if you're uninsured, you really have no access um, and your ability to manage your chronic condition is diminished greatly. I think policymakers have to act to ensure that these newly uninsured people are immediately eligible and can enroll in either exchanges or other programs where they could sustain their regimens of care and health. I think guidance during the pandemic requiring insurance plans to facilitate unimpeded access to medications is going to be key. And as people go from uninsured to then transitioning into some kind of insurance coverage, we need to pay attention that that medical regimen is not interrupted because any delay Um, exposes that person and ultimately society to a diminished health uh, status, um, greater cost, and that's um, just not something people can afford. You know, people are really struggling. And even for those persons that have insurance themselves, the job loss around them then straps um, household finances. And so even their ability to participate in copay and other kinds of um, out-of-pocket costs to maintain their health where they currently have coverage is challenged. They can't afford to put um, food on the table. They will cut corners in their own health to try to keep that family um, you know, with meals and, and try to live comfortably. So ARDA is encouraging Congress and every decision maker to act to eliminate a lot of longstanding barriers uh, to access and affordability and adherence by really eliminating things like step therapy or unwarranted prior authorization or formulary limits that are inappropriate and really harmful to people with serious illness and chronic conditions. Those changes have always been needed. And now with more people uninsured, it's even more important we fix the problems that exist within the insurance design and insurance system. One of the ideas that Trump is now pushing through to address affordability is an executive order on international price indexing or so-called foreign reference pricing. So this is looking at other countries to see what they pay for a drug and indexing the U.S. price to that uh, marker. 
I'd love to get your take on whether or not this would be really useful for your population, because he's talking about in the context of Medicare Part B, Mm -hmm. um, and that's a critical patient population for you. So what is the experience of patients with autoimmune disease in trying to access newer biologics in Europe, for example? Well, it's been uh, spotty or limited. You know, what we've seen as these breakthrough medications, be they biologics or biosimilars, have um, come onto the market, this has been life-changing for people with autoimmune disease. But what we've seen is some of the very countries that this um, this uh, international pricing model would reference uh, have very limited formularies relative to the kind of uh, drugs that are common for people with autoimmune disease here in the United States. They may only have one or two Um, options, if they even exist for um, those patients on their formularies, they may wait a long time before some of those medications that are available here in the U.S. go on to those formularies. The last thing we want to see happen are those models in which those prices and access to formularies are established in Europe come to the United States and actually affect our system of care. Um, There are a lot of things that may need to be improved in the United States relative controlling costs. We are all for that. But importing both the pricing model and, in some cases, uh, some of the uh, methodology behind those pricing models um, would just not be good uh, for the American public and certainly not for people with autoimmune disease. So before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the issue of a COVID vaccine. Some autoimmune patients are warned against taking vaccines because immunosuppressive drugs can cause adverse reactions. So does this mean that some members of your community will have to wait until we achieve so-called herd immunity, where 80% of us either get infected with COVID or get vaccinated against it? That's a really astute question. A lot of people don't realize that people with autoimmune conditions um, really are not necessarily able to take vaccines. And so they have a a strong vested interest in vaccines that they might be able to take um, that wouldn't necessarily trigger a significant reaction, um, you know, in their bodies. But there are so many triggers that can cause autoimmune diseases to flare up, vaccine among them, that for people with autoimmune disease, hearing the conversation about a vaccine relative to COVID-19. You know, they're excited for the general population. It makes them anxious. We're getting a lot of questions about whether they should consider taking the vaccine or not. We're talking to vaccine manufacturers, some of the researchers that are active in that space about including people with autoimmune disease in some of those trials, late stage trials, so we can understand whether these new vaccines might come into play. But this idea of herd immunity, having enough people in society who are vaccinated so that if you can't be vaccinated, um, you still are protected in your health. That's a huge concern. And we've seen a negative trend um, of participation in vaccine programs over the past 10, 15 years. And that's really concerning. And for people with children that they would like to have go to school, that they want to be out in society with the rest of their uh, peers, um, having people who are unvaccinated uh, really puts them at much higher and greater risk. So we are currently trying to educate the patient population about vaccines generally and a vaccine that could be, you know, coming down the road, um, hopefully early next year for COVID-19. But this is a relevant conversation, period, um, whether it's about the flu or any other condition um, that puts our population at risk. And we're also trying to look at those underlying reasons that parts of society have um, just seemed to have uh, stepped back from um, pursuing vaccination 
medications as a responsible way to maintain population health and thereby individual health. So when you're thinking about getting that flu shot this fall, think about not just protecting yourself, but protecting your neighbor who may have an autoimmune disease or someone in your family who might be afflicted as well. Absolutely. I'd like to leave our listeners on a hopeful note. Biotech innovation has powered the development of more than 700 COVID medicines, and new technology is a great source of hope for people with autoimmune disorders. What kind of breakthroughs do you think are possible as we begin to realize the possibilities of biologic medicines? That's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked it because so much of our conversation has touched on some really thorny and challenging issues. But I think when you ask about the bio-revolution, the way in which the biopharma, bioscience um, community has stepped up, it is remarkable. I mean, I have really been a booster, particularly coming from that autoimmune perspective where for an awful lot of autoimmune diseases, they don't have a dedicated drug. They don't have an FDA-approved treatment for their specific condition. So everything kind of a one-off for them. And um, yet more and more, we're seeing new, innovative, effective um, medications being uh, made available to them that we know are in the pipeline. You know, so from that perspective, I see it as a time of breakthrough. I see a lot of interest in rare diseases or diseases that haven't had um, the attention or perhaps even the means to um, find a solution, uh, whether it's a cure or something to treat the symptoms. That's happening right now. And I think it's happening because there are uh, gene therapies that are being explored. We're looking in in the cancer community at um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, things that could really speak to the autoimmune community. You look at the way in which the body does or doesn't respond to a threat, uh, you find a common denominator from oncology, immune deficiency, uh, autoimmune disease, or autoinflammatory disease. These things are all connected. Um, In some cases where the body's overreacting, or in places where the body's underreacting, where it allows a cancer cell to grow, or immune deficiency, where a person's really at risk. These things have um, some shared uh, um, denominators that the bio community is absolutely exploring and leveraging. And I would have to say the researchers themselves, the bio community, has absolutely in the past few years demonstrated not just that they're mission-driven around patient health, but they've really adapted their system to be patient-centered and patient-engaged. You know, they're engaging the patient community. They're um, working with groups like us to really fuel participation in clinical trials. So as a, as a new um medicine starts to come to market, we can actually create a sense of awareness among patients, among physicians, so that when that treatment becomes available, um, it's there for people. I think now more than ever, the bio community, you know, your members of bio are really on the front lines every day with patients. They are what is going to make the biggest difference in how people can lead their lives going forward. And um, I certainly appreciate it. And I do feel optimistic. Well, your enthusiasm is infectious. And Randy Rudai, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. We've learned about the immune system and how it functions and dysfunctions, the challenges facing this patient community during the pandemic, as well as the steps government can take to help and the hope that biomedical innovation provides. So thank you so much for joining us. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast, Player of Choice, or even better, 
If you learned something useful today, and I know I did, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of the Shiros and Heroes in Lab Coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to talk to a small Maryland biotech pushing one of the most promising COVID vaccine candidates through the pipeline. Less than a month after Novavax received a $1.6 billion grant from Operation Warp Speed to have 100 million vaccine doses ready early next year, the company released promising readouts from two studies. Their vaccine candidate was shown to offer strong protection from coronavirus infection in monkeys, and it produced a high level of antibodies against the virus in 56 human volunteers. Could it be a small biotech that saves the world? Get the latest on the vaccine race on next Monday's episode of I Am Bio.